0: In our interview with Stephen Hopper, former director of Kew Gardens from Western Australia, Stephen mentioned that if you are an amateur taxonomist and you would like to plug into the disciplined global system, which is the peer-reviewed process of identification of new species then it helps to align yourself with an institution that can help you navigate the existing rules and principles for a particular taxon that you might be interested in and the challenges of publication. In today's podcast we have somebody who has done just that in Brisbane. An accomplished journalist and publisher Robert White comes to taxonomy with skills in communications and presentation with qualifications in art and design Robert is the creator of the Cane Toad Times in the late 1970s and the Brisbane-based creative communications company Toad Show. Robert's communication talents are displayed in two important publications that I'll refer you to. One is called The Creek in Our Backyard, a practical guide for habitat restoration, which is available on the Save Our Waterways Now website. And the other, Robert's talents in stunning photography and clear presentation are amply demonstrated in a Field Guide to Spiders of Australia. This is the most comprehensive guide to Australian spiders ever published. From alien butt spiders to disco balls, it's a book that will cure your arachnophobia and help you identify and appreciate these amazingly diverse animals. Robert's satirical mind combines with a treasure hunting curiosity of the natural world. I hope you enjoy hearing about Robert's Entree into Jumping Spider High Society. Today's podcast is with Robert White. Robert is an expert in jumping spiders. Robert, really pleased to have you here with us today. And uh, how did you come to be an expert in uh, jumping spiders? Uh, Can you give us a quick rundown of how they captured your imagination and focus?
1: Thanks. Uh, great to be here. Uh, I started looking at jumping spiders as part of spiders generally because I wanted to test out what I was doing with habitat restoration with some science. I have a scientific family and uh, I guess that I was always aware with my family their bent for science and their need for evidence, and I was doing habitat restoration, and we had all of these guidelines which would suggest that what we were doing in terms of replacing the uh, the flora, basically the the plants in our removing the weeds and planting locally native plants, was a good thing to do for the benefit of the ecology. But no one actually could show me anything which said that that was true. So I thought I'd devise an experiment and I did a big sample of a weedy area right adjacent to uh, a bit of natural bush. And I found five times as many uh, actual animals, so more abundance and five times as many species. And that was... Uh, a fairly informal study, and in order to do so, I had to kind of do a bit of taxonomy, parataxonomy, I suppose. Basically, uh, I I would take each specimen that I didn't know um, and send a photo to my friends at Queensland Museum and get them to identify it for me. And gradually, with that and looking through Raymond Mascourt's books and all of the other books that I could lay my hands on. I would look through every page until I found it. And if I didn't find it, then I'd look through the internet. And this was around about 2006, 2007. And I then went on and did another experiment with a bigger sample and found pretty much the same thing, extending to families and genera in diversity as well like uh, one and a half times as many families which are the big groups and then three times as many genera and it was outstanding for showing up a particular animal called Thwaitesia, which has come to be known as the mirror ball the mirror disco ball spider that's a name that was given somewhere on the internet and it's stuck Uh, It was a pretty little jewel-like spider, and there were 35 of them uh, in my natural habitat plot, and only one in my equivalent house block plot, which had some native plantings, and so it wasn't entirely non-native, but it was by no means a native ecology. Uh, So I found not only that it appeared from spiders, as indicators of ecological health. It appeared that what we were doing was right, and because spiders are right there in that middle layer of, of, of general predators, they need food, and so if they're there, their food is there, uh, they're at midway in a complex food web, so they get eaten as well, and they eat each other, uh, but reptiles and birds uh, particularly uh, will eat spiders and uh it appeared that uh not only did we had I established greater diversity and abundance in this um natural area as opposed to a weedy area, but I also found an indicator species thirty five to one, and mm. since I've always looked for that spider and tried to correlate the quality of the habitat with, with its presence and found that it's really bearing out. So in southeast Queensland, when we go into any patch of butch, we, we don't have to rely just on the plant species. We can actually look for an indicator spider and see if that's there. And that's almost unfailingly true that I find this indicator species there. So then I did a uh, another plot, which was four years down the track of a habitat restoration. And I found four of the Thwaites species. And I also found similar increases in genera and families over the the non-improved block, so to speak. And so I I had established that we're uh, on the right track. I was really inspired by the Queensland Museum's terrestrial invertebrate study. That's what really got me going reading how many spider species they found in Greater Brisbane that had not been described, I think about 286 that they wow. documented as not being described. Uh, that fascinated me. I said, how could this be? And I started taking spiders in to show Dr. Robert Raven at Queensland Museum, and he was an incredible mentor, very generous with his time, very generous with his intellect. And... Uh, he uh, one day said that when I brought in a jumping spider, he said, oh, "I have no idea what that is. That's not my group. You'll have to <laughs> <laughs> you'll have to um, figure that out yourself." And the nearest expert was in Poland. Uh, <laughs> very practical. That's Marek Zabka, and uh, he he came uh, through Jerzy Przezinski's uh, school where they, uh, Jersey Prasinski was a worldwide expert in jumping spiders, and then uh, Marek made a trip through Ast- the Australian Museum to Australia and did a con- uh, considerable number of revisions of, uh, of, of genera. But he is the closest we've got in the world to any expert on Australian jumping spiders. So uh, there was a lot to do. Basically, we had about uh, 500 species known, and my estimate would be we've got around about four and a half, five thousand species altogether, so um, possibly 10 times as many out there as the ones we've described because they're particularly, they're hyper-diverse. It seems as though they're one of those animals which, develops very quickly in refugia as small areas of habitat get isolated from other small areas of habitat, say, for example, by a little ridge in the ranges of northern Victoria, uh, we found that all it takes uh, for a new species to stabilize is a little mountain range in between and when, so, when we're talking about a new species stabilizing here what what sort of time frames are we talking about? is this a... not too not too long surprisingly short we're looking at uh, all of the say for example peacock spiders and relatives being within the last two million years and uh, some new species we'd have to say between five hundred thousand years and and eight hundred thousand years ago would have been their last Urgence, their last split from their nearest neighbour, mm-hmm. so rapid evolution due to the changes in Australia and it, the, the big change that we know about in more recent times of course was the glacial maxima which uh, made, made life extremely difficult for, for uh, lots of animals and that's pretty much mm-hmm. when our megafauna disappeared. What, what are we talking about there?
0: That's a uh, hundred thousand years ago. Uh,
1: between no, much more recent than that. Uh, between the the last of the megafauna, I think, would have been around around uh, up to perhaps eighteen thousand to twelve thousand years ago, before it became just inhospitable and there was a lot of desertification, simply because of the dropping sea levels and changing prevailing climate. Uh, it became very bitterly cold and and, uh, and dry. Most of the Aboriginal population that was in Australia appears to have been killed off by those extraordinary commis- uh, conditions as well. Um, we see some uh, Aboriginal populations that withstood the severity of the weather conditions or the climate conditions. One is on the Inside or lee side of North Stradbroke Island, there's a 22,000 year old camp there. But, mm. uh, and other, uh, camps where the glacial maximum was weathered by Aboriginal people much fewer as, as it became more difficult to, to live in Australia, uh, off the land, uh, have been mapped by, uh, scientists mm. right across Australia.
0: Yeah, I come from Tasmania and the uh, Tasmania was uh, separated from main, the mainland of Australia probably 10,000 years ago. The species that are similar in Gippsland to the northeast of Tasmania are many and uh, you only okay. have to go over a hill to the uh, east coast and you'll find species that are separated by uh, millions of years. <laughs>
1: Right, okay, so you've got some commonality with um, the the south of Australia, Victoria, and so forth. Uh, I know that uh, there's a lot of commonality between the wetter areas of southern Tasmania and New Zealand, and uh, I know that there's also some commonality between parts of Tasmania and far south-west Western Australia, which suggest connection there too in those sorts of cases i think what's probably went on was that southwest western australia and 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 tasmania and parts of victoria had were connected and had a a common ecology and then when they separated little uh, remnants of those commonalities persisted there. Of course, the Nullarbor is in between, and uh, it's it's, it's quite different, Uh, but it's fascinating to me that you can have really quite a a high commonality of very interesting spider species in Tasmania and also in southwest Western Australia, because they're both hyper-diverse hotspots. Coming back to the Thwaites The these disco ball spiders and 35 specimens uh, as opposed to one specimen in the uh, unimproved uh, or relatively unimproved uh, control block that I was using to compare the the natural bush with. What's the species that you found? It was a Thuetzia. Thwaitia, Th- Thwaitia nigro nodosa. So black dots Thwaitesia. It actually has quite prominent black dots on the rear of its abdomen. It also has silver blobs which reflect uh, light and sparkle and and are related to rapid colour change. It doesn't seem to do rapid colour change but very close relatives in north of Australia actually employ a mechanism to use muscles over the tops of the silver blobs on their underneath their integument and make the silveriness disappear and so they turn kind of like dull colored and this is mm-hmm. presumably for when they get disturbed and drop to the forest floor, which is of a similar color to their their non-silvery mode brown version nikki bay wonderful uh, photographer in singapore has done some terrific uh, video showing this rapid color change another group that does rapid color change uh luke corgi and relatives in texture the uh what are known as the four george spiders or the large george george spiders and they, they do a bit of rapid color change too. There's really quite a good article on that. Amazing that they would be able to do that. And like their capacity to produce incredibly strong silk, there are a lot of things in spiders that humans would like to do and have never managed because the uh, things are going on in, in spiders anatomically and physiologically that we really don't understand. Mm. Lots of potential
0: for some commercial applications, but also just interesting to uh, be able to
1: understand these things. I think so, and that's what interests me, not so much the commercial applications, but the wonder, which Mm. inspires people to have a consideration for environment. It's not just, oh, it's pretty. It's amazing. like. (laughs) You mentioned my book and some, 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 perhaps some stories out of that that, uh, are striking. Well, I, it always it comes to me that the most amazing spider that I know of is on the cover. It's a, a net casting spider. So, ah. and it, it's, the, it's really big eyes, basically, that the, the middle eyes in the back row are very large. And very sensitive. I got caught up with my ABC TV interview and the delarani knew about this spider and her producer had told her, uh, oh ask him about the spider that eats its eyes. <laughs> <sighs> Uh, when she said, oh, that's the one that eats its eyes, well, I hadn't actually expressed it that way exactly. (laughs) What it does is it dissolves its own light-sensitive membranes in the backs of the eyes, things that we would consider to be analogous to our retinas in the morning because it would be damaging to those light-sensitive membranes and useless to have them during the day. It's too bright. Their Uh eyesight is about 2,000 times as sensitive as ours. You can easily see the moon at night. It sees its prey at night and throws a net over the prey when it sees. (laughs) But every evening when it needs its light-sensitive membrane, it grows them again. So it's just that, to me, is like the number one of the top 10 crazy spider stories. And if, if people can just think about that it surely would inspire them to look around and wonder at what other things were going on in the world of the tiny the invertebrates and and nature more generally the fast things can respond yeah and and uh, the, the capacity of nature to just throw up surprising answers really that's I guess, what natural selection is about, the, the good answers survive. <laughs> so, yeah. to speak. so that was a story
0: of the last 15 years of your developing interest in spiders. Uh, how did you come to that point? Where, where did you grow up? Can you give us a, just a quick potted history of where you've come from
1: there? Well, after being born in Melbourne, my parents moved to Brisbane after a short stint in Singapore. And so my father took up a post at lecturer In in the University of Queensland, he basically was in the School of Medicine teaching pharmacology. When they arrived, his boss was Professor Butz Olson and introduced him to people who he thought would get on really well. My father was good old Melbourne. Lefty player in a jazz band, as well as being a pharmacologist and, uh, scientist. Butz Olsen introduced him to Len Webb, Dr. Len Webb, who went on to establish that Gondwana actually was the origin of the spread of, uh, uh species across Australia uh, through, you know, from Australia to, to other parts of, uh, of Gondwana rather than, as they had thought, that the Northern Hemisphere is king and stuff just ended up here by migration. Uh, And this is also borne out by Tim Lowe's book, Where Song Began. The the songbirds actually originated in Australia Uh, because humans came down from uh, the Northern Hemisphere uh, by the time that they were sailing ships. Uh, uh, they thought everything came from where they lived. And the incredible bias against the Southern Hemisphere has made it really difficult to understand what's going on. There's more commonality between us and South America than us and England, of course. So Len Webb was an inspiration uh, as a family friend, mm. uh, a fantastic scientist and an enthusiast. I think if we can use that word, and uh, I can remember being around about six or seven, and uh, and Len coming out and talking to us boys and saying, "Well, what do you think is important in the world?" And I think I probably I probably said something like saving the forest, (laughs) and and he he turns around and calls out Mac, that's my father's name. He says, "Mac, this lad's a genius." From someone you admire and a scientist, that's really going to have a big effect. So although I didn't actually take a scientific path in my career, I took a path of uh, more or less creative writing and journalism, I actually kept, have maintained an interest in science all along. I can remember uh, even before I was in my senior years at high school, I was reading zoology textbooks. I just loved that stuff. I'm, I didn't actually uh, become a bird watcher or a, a spider a tarantula keeper you know I didn't have any any uh, pets like that <laughs> I didn't really know much about the fact that the, uh, the lace wing makes its little conical hole in the in the dust underneath the house uh, where its larvae uh, grow to maturity I I didn't get that until I came to live in the Gap where we're living now and joined our local habitat restoration group. And then it's just my bent, I think, is that when I learn something, I try to make sense of it not only for myself but also in a way that I could communicate it to others because if it took me Mm. a while to put together the story I can cut that time down for other people and start them on the journey of the knowledge of of nature with a head start from what I know. And to me, learning something and not passing it on is kind of like losing it. (laughs) um, I guess that's my inspiration for for wanting to be a writer all my life. And so I I did a, a book on... A guideline to the habitat restoration of our local catchments and then expanded that to all of southeast Queensland. Uh, I started with weeds actually. I identified my weeds, <laughs> mm. and I, a lot of habitat restoration people do that. You start with the things that have invaded, and you get a sense that this isn't right. this isn't this isn't the way this should be, and important parts of these colleges are being swamped and and destroyed. By invasive species. And I think a bit of OCD is in every natural. (laughs) Uh, So when I. You like to see order. (laughs) I do like to see order. And when I started getting a handle on taxonomy, I thought, this is it. I love this stuff. (laughs) I love the way that there are clear and obvious ways of understanding. Taxonomy Taxonomy has got to be the easiest science around. I'm amazed that, well, people do taxonomy in their sock drawer. That is if they sort their socks. Um, <laughs> uh, and so they can do taxonomy of spiders. They can do taxonomy of birds. They can do taxonomies of turtles or, or whatever. It's so simple. It's basically, does it already exist, uh, which you can determine by, certain diagnostic characters and if it doesn't it's new we uh, the spider world have this wonderful thing called the world spider catalog it contains every single scientific paper on every single species of spider in the world and it's uh situated now as a database at a university in switzerland which allows it to publish to its members and it's free to join anybody can join it publishes, it has for download all of those PDFs. If you can get a handle on what group it's in, you can get closer and closer to what genera it might be, uh, what genus it might be, and then uh, eventually you can determine whether the species that you're looking at uh, actually exists, exists. Well, I have in my collection of jumping spiders heaps of uh, um, new genera that are, um, so, you know, a big group of spiders uh, that I'm going to have to deal with taxonomically, but it's not hard. I, I would encourage everybody to try to figure out uh, what they're looking at from from the point of view of scientific papers, not just uh, bird books with, with, with pictures, but the the original descriptions of, by Gould or whoever did that that work it's fascinating you mm. can see then that also contains the history of the species and its knowledge in, by humans.
0: What I'd like to come back to though in your development as a taxonomist is um, to this idea of writing and wondering what your approach to writing is and uh, within that how taxonomic writing differs from the other types of creative writing that you
1: might do. Well, I've always been uh, fascinated by unusual writing as well as straightforward writing. So as an editor in my career, I've I've helped people make very clear what they're trying to say. I've worked for the United Nations and and, uh, worked in the correspondence unit writing writing Letters to heads of states and things like that. That was fun. And I've worked as, uh, in, in media units in the government of Victoria. I've basically, I don't see a, dis- a huge distinction between creative writing and journalism. I, I do see a, a really big distinction between bad writing and good writing. Uh, in other words, uh, it can be wacky, weird, way out, um, but, By its own lights, it has to make sense. Uh, It's not, or even if it doesn't make sense, it has some rules around it and some uh, some considerations that um, uh, put it into a package that makes sense. And Mm. I've liked, in that sense, the history of Dadaism, which was uh, a kind of nonsense uh writing uh which was employed by people uh hiding out from the war in Switzerland in the first world war and uh surrealism which is a kind of uh generally surrealism uh, written surrealism is kind of like a bunch of non sequiturs uh, uh the the kind of humor that you get when you take A narrative, and instead of having, say, the cat sat on the mat, uh, you could say the cat sat on the cat. And it's a startling change, very small, but startling change, which makes you think and say, what is the, what does the cat feel like underneath the cat that's being sat on, you know? Uh, And, uh, then that makes you go back to thinking a mat, you know, what does the mat feel like? And, and then you might animate that mat. And give it feelings and uh, a, a sense of life. Those are typical surrealistic um, uh, techniques of of making the ordinary world seem much more wonderful and unusual. But to me, it still makes sense. And so, science is the ultimate of making sense. There are a lot of bad writers. Who scientists who write badly, uh, and I would have to say that in Australia the norm is bad writing. Unclear, jargonistic, not necessarily logical, but the illogicalities are often hidden by obfuscatory language and uh, and di- difficult constructions, uh, long, peculiar sentences. It's a joy to read a good scientific paper, Fred Wanderlust, mm one of my favorite, um, Oh, he's a, a, a British jumping spider expert. But most modern scientific writers or most academics in Australia today in er- areas that I've read of actually overwrite, under-explain, mm. are too complex for their topic. That's uh, unnecessarily complex. Use big words when they could use little straightforward ones and I would really like to see a wave like a new broom through scientific writing in Australia, if that could be possible. I don't know who would be wielding it. All I can do is encourage people to to, to write better, and um, that was one of the ideas behind the writing of my spider book, is try to make it as simple as possible, as direct as possible, and as understandable as possible, and yet be scientifically rigorous and prove that you can be simple and clear and yet completely and utterly scientific. And that the value is then maximised. So if we were to talking to
0: budding uh, taxonomists out there lesson is to be as clear and simple as you can and from starting from that point you can help to make things clear in a in a larger sense in terms of the it's not just the writing that needs to be clear it's also the the relationships in the in the species that are being clarified by your taxonomic writing and don't be scared off by the complexity of the other literature. In that, it might be hiding an idea that that it's not clear. If it's not clear to the author, it's probably it might not actually be clear.
1: That's right. The, to twist that around, if it's not clear to the reader, is it really clear to the author? You mm. know. Did the author really think it through well enough? Well, I think that, you know, some of my best friends write badly (laughs) by my my judgment and I know, having read their work and I can understand it, that it is actually meticulously argued, unnecessarily complexly, I would say, but Mm. still meticulously argued. And uh, it is a, uh, a set of hypotheses with substantiations which... Is basically all that science is, uh, and it is there for you to read. But if I gave a non-scientific person one of these papers, they would just be utterly and totally mystified. Basically, I think that I could translate scientific papers for a living if if there was if there was a, a dollar in it, mm. because uh, there's a lot out there that simply could be rewritten to make sense people use their technical jargon as if it is better to use jargon than it is not and there is no argument that i could substantiate to say that any jargon is necessary at all i mean ordinary plain language fits all of the occasions i've ever seen where jargon is used instead Mm. can you
0: outline the process which you took to the taxonomic writing that led to the first species that you named?
1: Well, I uh, I haven't been a senior author. I've been a junior author on many uh, papers, so my approach is very much guided by my uh, senior authors. Mm. Barbara Eyre has uh, and I have worked together. It's been a delight to work with her because she's a German language speaker and spends a lot of time in Germany and therefore actually values my input not only from the the material that I have the specimens the photographs and the data but also helping with the clarity of the language and so I get to do a, uh, a lot of clarification from from a natural German speaker and mm. uh, I don't want to so, sort of stereotype Germans as, as as being regimented but they are usually very clear yeah. and uh, And Seem to have scientific genes if, if you like, you know, some Germans are just absolutely brilliant at science yeah. uh, there has got to be you know at least one German in every scientific lab in the world. I think there you know, is a diaspora of, of scientific talent and uh, That's fascinating. I've worked with also Dano Pica who's Czech and we did the ant mimicking spiders of Eastern Australia. I've worked with Joseph Schubert as a student and we, we did a new peacock spider. Basically there are rules or there are examples of taxonomic writings that we followed. And as I was saying before, Fred Wandless from Natural History Museum in in the UK just writes wonderfully clearly and beautifully. Mm. And I would use him as my guide uh, uh, in terms of style. Uh, Mm. In terms of how to explain what you write, I mean, you set out uh, talking, trying to make it clear what it is you're 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 presenting as a hypothesis. Uh, And in a taxonomic paper, basically, you're uh, proposing an, an a name for a species which is related to something. And it's therefore you need to cover off on its nearest relations. And I also think that it's important to uh, consider its distribution. And so it's basically yeah. a whole bunch of sort of things that you need to tick off. Yes, I've dealt with the distribution. I've dealt with the. The nearest neighbors, the nearest relatives. I dealt with the the lineages. The lineages are very, very important. I mean, the mm. understanding of taxonomy is an understanding of lineages. You no, know, this begat that, begat that. Basically, the whole tree of life. And yep. uh, I think that those sorts of understandings go back to Darwin um, and uh, read. Hooker and uh, all of those guys that when they were taking up the baton, so to speak, from Linnaeus and uh, the 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 what was it about 1600? I think some of the first uh, Linnaean style uh, taxonomy was done in the in the 1600s, and uh, you get to see and get a sense of it. But I like to read taxonomy now, so and I find it very easy to do so. It's just that at first you have to immerse yourself, uh, have faith that you will understand it through a whole number of ways of thinking. You can read it. You can discuss it with friends, mentors. You can teach it. That's an enormously important way of getting a handle on it. Explain it to someone else. Hmm. You, can, uh, uh, you can you can do it, and that is you can write papers. You, you don't have to. You can practice it in, in that way. And you can then get feedback on it and learn through the peer review process, which is, uh, of course, the way that we and um, make sure that each scientist has uh, somebody else who's an expert in the field looking over their work and and uh, judging its quality and making sure that it ticks off on all of those points.
0: That new knowledge is real new knowledge. Uh, yeah, fantastic. So, uh, look, I, to paraphrase the approach that you took there and perhaps um, relates to a podcast we did with Stephen Hopper who was saying that if you were an amateur taxonomist the best way to get started is to make a relationship with somebody in a museum and you've done that with barbara bear and together you've worked on your first paper together and uh, that's the uh, opens the door to the the st- sort of standard sets of arguments in a taxonomic paper and also gives you uh the uh access to uh tacit understanding of the the rules for any particular taxa uh, that you're looking with working with so uh, making friends with someone in a museum is a really helpful step and uh, you seem to have uh, made that um, process work and give you your first step up into being a taxonomic writer from being what sounds like a very interesting career with the united nations too and uh, other uh, political writing
1: Um, yes if you want to do this kind of work yeah, you hang around those people who do it and uh, one of the, the easiest methods to do that is to actually uh, participate in one of the citizen science um, adventures that uh, are occurring now across Australia. It's uh, a big wave, a big popular thing uh, that has arisen only in the last five years really. Uh, we've always had enthusiastic naturalists, uh, but this uh, citizen science is a kind of more adventure-based exploration of nature in, in, in the backyards of people in various uh, regions. The one I'm thinking of mainly is uh, the Kalula uh, coast, uh, based on Rainbow Beach there and North, uh, southeast Queensland, the northern parts of Southeast Queensland uh, near Fraser Island, and they've had a number of uh, weekend long festivals of e- exploration where experts actually mingle with enthusiasts, and you've got entomologists like. Don Sands, who's an expert in the Richmond Birdwing butterfly, which is extinct in Brisbane but not in, say, Beerwah, still is still hanging on in areas around Brisbane. But uh, it used to be common in Brisbane, but it's extinct here now. Uh, a very very beautiful and charismatic butterfly. You've got people who are experts in soil and fungi, in uh, birds, in plants like pandanus. Uh, the group gets split up into little teams on each day uh, with a group leader. I take the spider uh, enthusiasts, mm. one lot on a Saturday and a different lot on a Sunday, and we, we all do the same sites. Children in particular, uh, they're absolutely brilliant at seeing things which us oldies <laughs> are finding difficult with our declining eyesight and their little nimble fingers and their ability to put things in glass vials they're <laughs> hugely helpful and so we've got 37 new species of uh of spider in the one back in what was it 2018 i think and with when
0: you say new species there that's new to science or new to the yeah. new to science
1: wow new to science and that went worldwide uh with a media release coming out of the region featuring john sinclair who is famous for saving fraser island from sand mining and logging and uh, a wonderful wonderful guy very a scientist too a self-taught scientist is a teacher actually and uh 37 new species were uh, ones that were not known to science, not described. Some, um, when I go and look in an area like Tin Can Bay, I can see species that I know are new because I've seen them before. And yes, they're on my list to describe, but I haven't got to them yet. Uh, So they're new species. But that would be a known new species. But then there's ones that I have never seen before, and in that particular trip I got Beelzebub, which is a, an incredibly obscure family of spiders called Ray Spiders, Thridiosomatidae. uh Beelzebub meaning Lord of Flies, and I'd never even seen an example of the, 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 the family before. I had... Uh, A web in my book, which was uh, given to me by Jonathan Coddington or Gustavo Hornweger, I can't remember at the moment, but one of those two. They're they're two scientists in the United States uh, who've been out here and and finding that sort of some of the more obscure Australian stuff. My photos then of that particular specimen were, as far as I know, the first. Photos ever to be seen in the world of a living Beelzebub, of a living Australian theriosomatid, in fact. So, and this is not beyond uh, the capacities of anyone with an iPhone. You know, yeah. <laughs> they, especially one of the later iPhones with a, a little clip on magnifying thing, people can actually take world-class photos, in terms of quality, uh, Mm -hmm. uh, of absolutely new and exciting things, and it's not that hard. In fact, one of the two things that I say to people is there are about 75% of the projected number of all spider species not yet described by science. And I think that from what you were telling me, this actually flows through to all all of the taxa as well, that uh, about 70% or 75% of the, of the world's uh, organisms are not yet described by science. Well, I also then say, oh, and I got 37 new species over a weekend at Kalula. And they go, wow, they go, wow, there's 75% yet to described. And then they go, "Wow, you've got 37 new species." And I said, "Well, we can't have both of those being wow. One of them <laughs> from the other. <laughs> you know, we we can be um, um, delighted, uh, but we can't really be surprised if we didn't get 37 new species." I'd be worried. <laughs> yeah, true. Um- <laughs>
0: Well, that was an encouraging podcast. It's easy. To get started on the pathway to taxonomic high society, all you need to do is say yes to opportunities to go outside and observe. Taking Questacame with you will help you do it properly, collecting observations and formal records, enjoying reading taxonomy, line drawings, and images of live creatures, enjoying writing and formal scientific writing when you have some help to make sure it fits in. Getting eco connected can give you a starting point for going deep with one species if you want to. Thanks, Dad. It's amazing to hear from the person that wrote Australia's spider book, especially for me because I'm eco connected to Ruth Timnocassa, a crab spider from Singapore. <music>